house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. In an old folks' home. It's a retirement community for active seniors. I always envied you girls. You had a bond that I'd never had with anyone. Chewing gum? No one will notice. Right. Hi. I can talk because I have a mouth. My heel has a mouth. <laughs> In her shoes. We're a pair. Like Seth and Cher. They split up. They remain quite close. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows the true true that a half-finished book is, after all, a half-finished love affair. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris Vile, and I'm here as always with that bastard that keeps stealing my shoes, Joe Reed. <laughs> I would like to thank you very much for bringing up the Ben Wishaw, James Darcy portion of Cloud Atlas at the beginning of this podcast, so that I am weeping inside already as we begin to discuss this. As, as we, like, go through a complete journey of emotions and tears, talking about maybe the greatest movie of all time. <sighs> I love this movie. I love I love this fucking I, movie. I love this movie. Okay, we so are on a little bit of a streak of movies that we love too. Yeah, so, like, so we got to get into some garbage. We have like the next month <laughs> planned, and yes. hopefully we we I don't think we're There's going to love them, but no, I, no. I, I don't know if they'll be a major <laughs> stinker or not. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll cook up a real stinker for you guys. Some coming soon. Because you, I'm glad you mentioned Cloud Atlas, which was our last episode, and it was our listener's choice. We should probably say up front, we are doing in her shoes part so quickly. Oh after, yeah, surprise everybody! <laughs> yeah, surprise! Hi, hi. We decided to do this not like you know to shun the other two movies in that in our listener's choice poll that we did, White Oleander and The Shipping News. Uh, but there was a separation in terms of voting numbers. Yes. Uh, there was the top and two, and then we, there was the other two. As we very strongly pointed out last week, we will absolutely be doing those movies in the future, but like we kind of wanted to jump on this one because, A, we'd been promising it so long, and the responses i mean cloud atlas was always leading the poll but the very very vocal group of our followers on twitter were like canvassing to get this movie to win the poll this is sort of the bernie sanders of the of our uh, listeners choice poll which is never never leading never quite leading in the poll but like a very very vocal second place yes yes um and we've always just wanted to do this movie, so we thought that it would be perfect opportunity and maybe an extension of our treat to you guys. Yeah. Wanting holidays. Your... Everybody, it's... it's we're to, to wrap up your holidays for good and all, we are going to talk about In Her Shoes. Plus, as, you, as we mentioned, we freaking love it, so... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll be back to movies we hate, or not hate even, but like, (laughs) you know, milk toast, middle of the road, mediocrity, and sometimes very bad movies soon. But that today is not that day. No. Because In Her Shoes is spectacular. Yeah, it's truly, and, and also, it's also, it's spectacular, but also has been overlooked enough in its, you know, lifespan that I always feel like I need to be vocal for it. I think it was a movie that was um, avoided in its initial outset because people didn't want to watch chick flicks and people it's an incredibly sort of... dude focused Oscar year. Oh yeah, especially, but even like even in the years since, I think it's one of those movies that like people are surprised that they end up liking. You know who loves this movie is my dad. My parents love this movie. They should um, love this movie. It's a good they should movie. love this movie. But it's one of those things where it's just like I think there's there are some imaginary hurdles that certain viewers we we were, we're talking about this on the on the outskirts of the Little Women conversation where you know all these people had these male friends who had no intention of going to see Little Women because it's called Little Women and it's about little women and there there does seem to be a hurdle with American male moviegoers in in you know in general where they don't want to see a movie called In Her Shoes, that it's about women and seemingly shoes. (laughs) I mean, I think that's one of the things that actually ends up working in the favor of the movie, because it does start out on those a little bit more superficial notes, and it's ultimately a movie about, like, discovering what is beneath the surface of someone's truth. And, uh, you know... Watching this movie for the purpose of this podcast... I was reminded that this movie does take a little bit of runway to get going. Mm-hmm. It's a long movie for a, for what is essentially a light a light dramedy. Um, the first it's like half minutes. hour is a lot of stuff that's unintegral to the movie, but it, the setup yeah. is really important. Like I think in that my movie memory, it is. Room. It is. It's just in my memory. Tony Collette Rose kicks Maggie out so much sooner mm-hmm. than what actually happens. And I think a lot of that is I've watched this movie so many times picking it up on cable like partway through. So sometimes when I'm picking it up, like Maggie's already in Florida or you know, whatever. And so the very very beginnings of the movie, like I've already sort of blown past. Yeah. But you're right, it is important. It is important to set that, especially when you look at this movie as I have increasingly begun doing as Cameron Diaz's career peak. Like, as a Cameron Diaz movie, I think it's very important to see the beginning of it and to see the sort of journey that her character goes on. Mm-hmm. Because more and more, I, I mean, I'm a huge Tony Collette stan, obviously, and, like, Shirley MacLaine is, you know, the the very top of the pinnacle for me. But more and more, I watch this movie, and I'm so impressed with what Cameron Diaz is doing. And like that to me, that's the performance of the three of them that I think I would be most enthusiastic about having seen get nominated. Yeah. I mean, and all, but that also carries the baggage of like Cameron Diaz never was nominated. And because she has essentially retired because she doesn't want to continue working much to our chagrin, she will probably never get nominated unless she decides to come back. Yeah. So like that I think that's part of that too but I do think that it is a really incredible performance. I think she has the most 
difficult role, especially of the three female leads, but she chooses to, like, it could have not been the best performance because, like, she could do a lot of Maggie's reveals and a lot of, like, Maggie's, you know, the performative things, like learning how to read and, like, her drunkenness. She could have made bigger, bolder choices, and she mostly doesn't do that. It's a very subtle performance in a way that, like, it's the type of performance that doesn't get those type of accolades because the actor is choosing to do something more realistic and human than, like, look at me act. I agree with that. But I, I here's what I think it is the bold, the big bold thing of her choices in this movie is she managed she decides to play against <clears throat> excuse me. She decides to play against her own type as an act or, or not play against, play into her own type and her own sort of reputation as an actress. Mm-hmm. And sort of come face to face with this idea, this sort of like you know, you're not getting any younger. You're not going to be able to rely on the same bag of tricks thing, which I think is a lot of the criticism, some of the criticism that Cameron Diaz has gotten in her career is that she sort of relies on this sort of like Charlie's Angels sort of like cute blonde thing. And I don't always think that's been a fair criticism of her, but sometimes it has been a fair criticism of her. And I think in this movie, I think she faces right up to that. And she essentially plays into that, and then plays through it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In a way that I find really, really kind of daring. And it also, like, kind of captures the movie's tone as well, because I think there's always this danger for it to go really, really dark. And the movie yeah. has its darkness, but, like, it's still, uh, like, a comforting movie. So it's like yes. those things also aren't overplayed as well. And it moves from sort of dark even you can even see it in the like cinematography uh, mm-hmm. and it moves and this is Terry Stacy doing the cinematography who was a very talented cinematographer it moves from darker to lighter as you know it's a very sunny sort of palette by the end of the movie but if you watch that beginning again i'm like oh there's a lot of like dark murky apartments and like alleyways in this movie that i don't remember mhm that's interesting. You know, I mean, in a perhaps a smaller way, because she was never like the box office draw that Cameron Diaz was, you could say the same thing about Tony Collette playing into her, like, at least in conversation with some of her past roles, because her character's, like, big arc a little bit is reliant on her weight a little bit and like you think back to muriel's wedding which was a big talking point and this feels like a reference to that and of course it ends with both well this character getting married yes muriel's wedding she gets married in like the middle but like that wedding doesn't matter right uh no it's 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 very satisfying watching the rose arc in this movie because it's you your sympathies are so heavily with her and it hurts when she hurts in this movie do you know mm-hmm. what i mean in the beginning especially to like to I see mean, her get i mean that's true such... of any tony collette performance that's why we yeah. love tony collette but to see her get such a sort of you know for lack of a better term uncomplicated happy ending like there really isn't mm-hmm. a whole lot in the end of rose's story that you're just like oh like there's still some questions to be answered like 
you know, she's very happy and she seems to have found like the right guy and she's happy with her sister and she's found her grandmother mm-hmm. again and all this sort of stuff. And I think she deserves that, honestly. But I mean, and maybe this speaks to like some of the movie's intelligence. We're getting way into it before we even do the sixty-second plot description. So maybe as has after been this, our custom we, lately. Yeah, <laughs> so we do as especially we do with movies we love. Um, yeah, I think it points to the movie's intelligence and like what makes this movie special is that like all of those superficial things like she gets married she finds more fulfilling professional um environment which i i guess those things are not superficial i shouldn't just like disregard them but the movie right. knows that what's important what is in, what is essential to like our emotional experience and what makes this movie special is that for both of them their arc is about their relationship and reconciling that and, you know, coming to some, like, terms and acceptance of their mother's death and how it's affected their relationship. Yeah. And that's what's important. So well well put. Thanks. I feel a little out of sorts today because I'm so sick. Yeah, Chris is being a real trooper, you guys. So, you know... Give give them even more credit than you normally do for being such. Please a Please appreciate podcaster. my newfound baritone. <laughs> You're um, like Phoebe on that one Friends where she gets a cold and she becomes like this sultry uh, sort of blues singer. My sticky shoes, my sticky sticky shoes. Why you stick on me, baby? <laughs> Thanks for the lights, honey. Yeah. If I say anything too crazy, it's not the standum today. It's my flu. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but Joseph, enough about me. Yes. More about her. Yes. Specifically in her shoes. Would oh you my. like to give us a 60-second plot description? Sure. I will. Let's, Let's do see the quick rundown of the movie. As we probably have mentioned, it's directed by Curtis Hanson, Hansen, uh, written by Susanna Grant from the novel by Jennifer Weiner, uh, starring Cameron Diaz, Tony Collette, Shirley MacLaine, Brooke Smith, the very sexy Mark Feuerstein, Norman Lloyd, Ken Howard. It premiered at TIFF and then opened wide the first weekend of October 2005. Joseph, are yes. you ready? I am, as soon as you give the credit that is deserved to uh, Francine Beers as Mrs. Lefkowitz, the oh, true okay. star of this movie. Uh, you know who we also haven't mentioned yet? I'm shocked we haven't, because in our like planning and texting back and forth of this episode, the actress that plays <laughs> My Marsha, who is truly credited in the credits as My Marsha. Oh, is it? Oh, that's so funny. Well, and also just the fact the woman who plays Sidel too is like one of the great all time like monsters in romantic comedy <laughs> history. Candace Azara, so good for her. Yeah, this is quite a cast in terms even just like one scene people like Anson Mount is the guy she's making out with in the elevator in the very beginning or the whatever bathroom stall or something. Basically, um, all of the dudes have been in a Sex in the City episode. Eric Balfour, yeah, like any like <laughs> a lot of bad guys. Um, it's a really good cast. Yeah. All right. I'm stalling. Marsha is played by Jackie Geary, by the way. Good for her. In an alternate universe, this movie is titled My Marsha's Vagina. 
<laughs> we'll get into my monstrous vagina for sure. Um, oh, maybe not. Francie. <laughs> Francine Beers is Mrs. Lefkowitz I bring up because she has my favorite line reading in the entire movie when she refers to Maggie as Miss Hotsy Totsy Pants. Mm. I love it so much. All right. I love it as well. Joseph, are you ready to give us a 60-second plot description <sighs> of my Marshall's vagina, also known as In Her Shoes? Yes. All right. Your 60-second plot description starts now. All right, Maggie and Rose are sisters. Maggie is the irresponsible one. She's sort of hot to trot and out the town, and she doesn't have a job. She can't hold a job, and she gets men to, like, buy her drinks and clothes and things. And Rose is the responsible one. She's a lawyer. Maggie keeps borrowing Rose's shoes. She has a ton of shoes that she buys when she feels down because Rose doesn't isn't happy with her body image and whatever. At one point, Maggie ends up sleeping with the guy that Rose is sleeping with, and Rose kicks her out, and Maggie goes all the way down to Florida because she's found a whole bunch of letters from their grandmother that they didn't know they had, and their grandmother's played by Shirley MacLaine, and she lives in a retirement community, and Maggie, like, gets, like, re- like fits in at the retirement community surprisingly well, becomes a personal shopper down there, sort of self-actualizes. It's great. Rose eventually finds them, goes down and joins them. She and Maggie reconcile. Rose met this really great guy named Simon, and she's getting married, and they have this wonderful wedding in this Jamaican sort of jerk shack back in Chicago, and it's really lovely. And there's an E.E. Cummings poem at the end, because Maggie learned how to read by reading E.E. Cummings through this old man at a hospital, and she reads a poem at the end, and everybody cries because it's beautiful. And that's time! How did you do that? Because you've seen this movie 20,000 times? Possibly. I also managed to leave out a few things, but like... Kind of not a ton. You didn't so, really. Leave, you didn't do a ton about the mother, or the, or the dad. Yeah. Yes. Right. The mother yeah, their, their is mother has very has, essential yeah. to me. Yes, she's sort of this like phantom figure in their life. She died when they were young. We find out at some point that she had um, sort of mental problems that were diagnosed and were being somewhat treated, and that was the cause of the rift between their father, uh, Ken Howard, and. Uh, Shirley MacLaine, who was their mother's mother. And so that's why Shirley MacLaine was essentially shut out of their lives for so long. And then she was going to be institutionalized and um, committed suicide, but because... By by car accident. Yeah, she drove her car into a tree? Something like that. Is that that. it? Something? Yeah. Um, But because Rose is the older sister and Maggie was very young when it happened, Rose has a very different perspective on their mother right. and what their relationship was like. And her version of internalizing it ends up being that she's taking care of Maggie and all of Maggie's, you know, yeah. wildish behavior. Um, and like, there's this sort of like ironic storyline where like Rose being the responsible older sister sheltered Maggie from all of this stuff about their mother that could have, hurt her and yet because of that dynamic then rose became sort of the person who was making you know making it possible for maggie to have this sort of arrested adolescence and and to never really grow up and rose is ultimately the one who ends up getting hurt the most by that Mm -hmm. because she takes all of it on the the most moving moment in the movie where like kind of all of these moving pieces, these moving emotional pieces click into place is there's a scene where the two sisters are sitting down with their grandmother and they're talking about their mother and everything that kind of comes up, Cameron Diaz's character looks around and says, I don't remember it that way. That's not what it was like. And at one point, Tony Collette as Rose looks at her and says, you were so little. Yeah. And like her and there's voice so is much... breaking, and like you can feel all of the years of like pressure of sheltering her from yes. pain. 
And she it's, realizes it. It's a long time coming in this movie for all three of those characters to get into a room together. For a long time, Maggie is trying to keep... Um, uh, what is Shirley MacLaine's character's name? Ella. Uh, yes. Uh, so Maggie's trying to sort of keep Ella from contacting Rose because Maggie sort of wants Ella all to herself and she doesn't want to have to face up to the reason that she and Rose are estranged. Yeah, because she tries to hide all of her problems from her grandmother, but because right. it's played by Shirley MacLaine and it is very well written, her grandmother sees through it all very quickly. Like when she tries to steal money, she yeah. basically offers her to get her a job and she'll double, double whatever she makes. But, like, once Rose actually makes it down to Miami and, like, joins the other two characters, the other two main characters, the movie really, really opens up and really mm-hmm. becomes this, like, wonderfully sort of, like, warm, but also, you know, there's some really, really great scenes between a lot of the different characters. And it's it's surprising how little of the movie exists in that space, but it really does feel like hard won, a hard-won uh, reunion for mm-hmm. all three of them, which is, like... Really, really good. And we do get that sort of nice intermediate time where Rose and Simon fall in love and Maggie sort of like steps on her own two feet, uh, you know, with Ella's help, certainly, but like without Rose there. And I think that is important. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, the other thing about like once they break apart, they live their own lives and then they come back together um, with their grandmother that they didn't know that they had. And or I, does Rose does know that she has a grandmother, right? She could no. remember. She, well, I no, mean, there's she the moment that where she had she, a grandmother. Yeah, she can like kind of remember her, but she didn't know that she was still around. That type of thing. Well, when but, she she confronts their dad and she says it would have been nice to know that I had a grandmother. Mm-hmm. So I think like she also did think like Maggie just assumed that that uh, you know her mother's mother was dead along with her grandfather who is who actually is dead in the movie. Um right. and Rose I don't think they specify whether she also thought that her grandmother was dead or just thought that she had abandoned them and mm-hmm. um you know wasn't you know didn't care. Aside from like the baggage between and the rift between their dad and Ella like how interesting this movie like examines how other generations of family bullshit can affect you as a person. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. But like to go back to the sea, to all of them coming together, what is so like rewarding about this movie and like the emotional arc of all of these women is that like the two sisters are very much stuck in this relationship of like what their dynamic is that is not beneficial to either of them and the movie does such a good job of showing how they like need to be apart and figure out their stuff separately in order to be able to have a healthy relationship again and a supportive relationship again i find that very moving about the movie yeah, Rose is able to, you know, she quits she quits her job at the law firm and she takes up this sort of like intermediary job as a dog walker and then she that's sort of when she reconnects with Simon, but there's a lot of I think I've never read the book, but I would imagine there's probably more about her sort of negative body image stuff in there because mm-hmm. this movie definitely touches on it, but like Tony Collette in this movie, like, I think they work hard at the beginning of this movie to make her seem sort of frumpier. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
Tony Collette's not a big woman. You know what I no, mean? So it's like no. you're not going to really be able to like tell that part of the story if that story, you know, does exist more in the book or not. But I think the movie does a good job of be, of <laughs> showing that like, well, when your sister's Cameron Diaz, everybody would probably feel like, you know, mm-hmm. frumpier opposite that. So <laughs> Listen, we get it. Um, I think if we can want to start with why this movie had Oscar buzz, do you think it started with the actresses or started with Curtis Hansen? Does it... I don't know if they're two separate things. I think the way that Oscar worked in the mid-2000s, like, would it have to be both? Like, together... Sure. To yeah, me, in a way, like that. I feel like without the other, maybe because of what the movie is, and uh, had Curtis Hansen already had that poker flop? No, that was right after this. Okay, that was the one that kind of like killed it for him, which is too bad. Yeah, which is too bad because he's wonderful. Um, I mean, I guess he, maybe you say he was like he he has since passed away, which is yeah, super Rest awful and tragic. We do love your movies. Um, He's I'm one. He's a director I think of along the lines of a Jonathan Demme, who has also passed away. Um, in that, like, he never really was tied down to one genre specifically, mm-hmm. and managed to sort of find. I mean, it's tough to say like find the humanity in a movie like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, but like he did good character work in movies that could have been very concepty. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. think The River Wild is a very, like, exciting thriller. But also, like, you get to the core of, like, what's going on with that family. It helps that you have Meryl Streep. But, like, I also think he probably, he stirs up that Demi feeling because his biggest Oscar success is not exactly representative of his career yeah. and his approach yeah. to the material that he worked with. So I just want to run down, like, the the sort of... The sweet spot of Curtis Hansen's, Curtis Hansen's career to me begins in 1992 with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's his sort of like first big hit, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's like Evil this Rebecca really De like Mornay. huge like star turn for Rebecca De Mornay. It's a really, really like good thriller. It's like over the top in so many ways, but like worth seeing. Honestly, still worth, worth checking out. It was one of the first R rated movies that I saw. Um, on my like on my own like my cousins and I rented it on VHS and it scared the shit out of me. Just the poster scared the shit out of me. I never saw the movie until Even... I was older, and it seemed absurd to me after seeing the movie that I was so terrified of it because like the poster is like super early nineties conceptual like, like so her many face reflected like... in sharp scissors like it's a it, whole thing where it's like it's ripping the family photo and it's just like Rebecca mm-hmm. de Mornay's eye you know it's like why was I so terrified of this overlit white woman even before they get to the part where she is like the psycho nanny out for revenge in that movie mm-hmm. that movie scared me so much and freaked me out so much because it shows like the outset of that movie is that her husband is this like molesting doctor who like this molesting OBGYN who like like sexually assaults Annabella Shiora while like giving her an exam and like that part of the movie freaked me out so much because they really like show this like creepy like examination going on and then because when he gets like busted for that and he has you know he goes down for it 
Van Rebecca de Mornay, as his wife, has a miscarriage, and it's this, like, hugely graphically bloody, like, there's so much blood, like, as she's being rushed into the hospital for this miscarriage, and, like, already I'm just like, I I am so beyond, I'm so in the deep end of this movie, <laughs> this I was is not, not prepared. This not for children. Yeah, seriously, and, like, then, then, even from there, it gets into the Psycho Nanny stuff, but, um, so that's 92, 94 is The River Wild, which... You know, if you have a spare three hours, get me started on the River Wild. I fucking love that movie. <laughs> we it's should so do the good. River Wild. Can we do it's, the River Wild? Yeah, I don't think it got any Oscar nominations, and it got a bunch of Globe nods. It was like Globe nominated for Streep and Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it was. It's so good. 1997 is the big hit. L.A. Confidential, umpteen Oscar nominations. Kim Basinger wins for supporting actress, which we've talked about before. That like neither one of us supports, but like that cast is astoundingly good. First time I'd ever yeah. seen Russell Crowe in anything. First time I'd ever seen Guy Pearce in anything. Spacey's great, honestly. For as much as you can say about Spacey, he's great in that movie. Um, the whole male ensemble is really, really good in DeVito, that movie, Which is David why it's so strange to me that it... And we've talked about Kim Basinger before, but like that it's still centered around her performance... Uh, but like she had a narrative, and like like you mentioned, these are actors that we were seeing for the first time for the most. Well, part. she was the only one too without any internal competition, so it was easy to campaign for her if you were on yeah. the studio side because you weren't pissing anybody off. Whereas like Crow and Pierce are both the leads. Spacey is like arguably the lead, but probably supporting. And so Spacey and Devito were sort of like scrambling for supporting campaign and like ultimately you could just like put all your weight behind Basinger who had a good story who was like an actress who everybody sort of like you know had enjoyed in things and it also gets I, to piggyback on Hollywood history because she looks like Veronica, Veronica Lake. Lake yeah <laughs> if she looked any less like Veronica Lake I wonder if she would have that Oscar that's that's a good question because it's not a good performance guys my favorite scene in that movie is when Guy Pierce and Kevin Spacey go to the one club and and the the club where all the women are supposed to be uh sort of cut to look like famous Hollywood stars and he starts like really giving the business to this woman who he thinks is a hooker uh dressed up like Lana Turner and she like throws a drink in his face and leaves and Spacey just goes that was Lana Turner and it was <laughs> it's it's a movie that like gets credit for being this sort of more stoic than I think it is. Like, it's a real, like, it's a crowd pleaser, LA Confidential. Like, it is not just, like, the anti-Titanic in terms of, like, I think that's sort of how it got slotted in, where, like, this is the critic's choice, and Titanic is the people's choice. And, like, LA Confidential is a time, if you give yourself to it. Like, not every movie is going to have Ron Rifkin being, like, hung out a window by his ankles until he, like, (laughs) gives up the information. Like... It's a good movie. It's a great movie. And so after I that... I hate that narrative, too. That, the L.A. Confidential versus Titanic narrative. Because also, yes. critics did like Titanic. Yeah. Critics Shut did like up, Titanic. Y'all. Yeah. One of these days, we should do a 97, maybe. The problem is, the interesting stuff in 97 isn't the stuff that missed. It's the stuff that hit. Yeah. Anyway. Wonder Boys in 2000, which is a really interesting movie in that, like, it... It was expected to do better than it did. I think Michael mm-hmm. Douglas Michael Douglas gets the like surprising Oscar nomination morning snub. Frances McDormand was probably expected to contend for supporting actress, and then Almost Famous comes along and is like an even more acclaimed performance for her, mm-hmm. and she gets the nomination for that. It does win screenplay, right? No. It won no. Um, original song. Is that the Bob it Dylan did win song? original song for Bob Dylan's Things Have Changed, yeah. for sure. Definitely. The thing about Wonder Boys is, like, it's 
it feels like the case example for it, the those things have changed lately somewhat. But like, this is why you don't release your Oscar movie in February. Or things in the have spring. changed. You said that's funny, huh? Oh, you said oh, things God. have changed. You can tell I'm sick because I don't even own my puns. Um, I think Wonder Boys is a great movie, though, and it's one of those movies that gets better every time I see it, which places it in line with In Her Shoes. Um, in between I need Wonder to Boys... rewatch it because I feel like it's going to explode for me when I do rewatch it, and I'll you like should. it even more. Yeah. Um, Eight Mile is the one that like really sticks out in 2002 that's just like, huh, Curtis Hansen directed Eight Mile. Yes, he did. Um, another really bad Kim Basinger performance. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I should say, I don't actually, I don't think she's bad in LA Confidential. I just don't think she, she belonged within a mile of winning the Oscar for it. But whatever. Yeah, we'll, yeah, get, we'll get off of poor Kim Basinger's back. She hasn't done anything to us. She's wonderful um, in Pret-a-Porter. We like her. Yes, she <laughs> is. We did give her a lot of justified praise for Pret-a-Porter. In Her Shoes comes in 2005. We are talking to you about that right now. Lucky You is the gambling one in 2007 with Eric Bana and um, Drew Barrymore, right? Yes. It yeah. opened that against Spider-Man a... 3. That makes sense because it's 2007. Uh, yeah, huge flop. Kind of like, you know, put the kibosh on what had been a really kind of hot... Well, In Her Shoes didn't exactly do well. So, like, In Her Shoes kind of slowed the career down a little bit. And then, mm-hmm. like, Lucky You put the brakes on it. Um, after Lucky You, he directs a few other movies. A notable one for me is Too Big to Fail, the HBO movie about the financial mm-hmm. crisis, which I think is excellent. Uh, that's one's got William Hurt and Paul Giamatti and Billy Crudup and Cynthia Nixon, and it's really, really good. And of the, those like HBO semi-current events movies, like Game Change and Recount and all of those, Too Big to Fail is easily my favorite, and I do often chalk that up to Curtis Hansen because he's such a good director. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the Curtis Hansen thing. I, I've, he's a director who I you sort of don't realize you love as much as you do until you look at all of his movies like sort of laid out there and it's just mm-hmm. like oh right like he's really good and he's really eclectic and I don't know and he's the I type of things that him. like directors don't get the credit they deserve for when you look at something like In Her Shoes just like the I guess emotional finesse of telling the emotional arc of this in a way that is so satisfying um, and like kind of rendering out these performances in a way that's calibrated for you to feel certain things at certain times is really difficult to do. Like, I think that's something that Marielle Heller is not getting the credit for that she deserves right that's now. That's a really and good like, comparison, actually. I was um, thinking about her movies a lot while watching this. That's really interesting that she could be sort of like the heir apparent to... Um, a Curtis Hansen style career, which is really interesting. And the one thing I like about um, one of the many things I like about the work that he doesn't in her shoes is he doesn't ever seem to feel the pressure to, for lack of a better term, like butch it up or rough it up. Like he keeps mm-hmm. it very feminine and in a way that like feels, you know, be, speaks to a confidence, I think on his part in the material and in his actresses, that he doesn't feel the need to like put this kind of male stamp on it. That like, oh, you maybe based on a you know, a book, a chiclet book. We can talk about that too in a second. Mm-hmm. But like, um, but it's you know, he doesn't try and like, oh, from the director of LA Confidential and make sure everybody knows it. 
Well, and I think the opposite is true, too. And, like, maybe this is a good gateway to, like, the mid-2000s, finger quotes, chiclet thing, is the opposite is true in that he doesn't do this over like this cheap over like feminizing of it where he's like reducing the material to like oh people that are coming to see this just care about shoes or right right but he does manage to like like it's not superficial you get why the shoes thing is a conceit in the movie right you get Mm -hmm. the idea that like that tony collette's character just sort of collects all these shoes she mentions it overtly at one point she's just like i you know when i'm feeling bad i don't want to go buy clothes because clothes don't fit and i don't want to buy you know i don't want to get food because that'll just like make the problem worse so i get shoes because shoes always fit and it's also like it's this thing that connects them they're the same Mm -hmm. shoe size right like the shoes you know it's it's you know maybe an easy metaphor but like it's one that the movie doesn't really feel the need to press down upon too hard mm-hmm. but like you get it you get it yeah it's like the most it does to press down on that is the title <laughs> yeah i think that's right i think that's right um and then they revisit it again at the wedding at the end where they're like you know they do the something borrowed and something blue kind of stuff mm-hmm. and i think it feels you know correct and in this case it's she's borrowing ella's shoes right mm-hmm that brings Ella into this sort of like circle of theirs, right? Where now they're mm-hmm. like this unbroken circle where they all can share each other's shoes, and it's you know it's a, you know they're sharing each other's lives. So, the adaptation I think is a re- is done really well. You mentioned uh, at Susanna the Grant, Susanna Grant, who Hell yeah. was Os- Oscar nominated for the Aaron Brockovich screenplay, and yeah, I think it's really wonderful. I think there are some really wonderful moments. I to bring it into the chiclet conversation, which I mean, like I said, the finger quotes because it was such a at this era, like a very derogatory term towards these books that did well that were targeted towards women and told female stories. And it was just like shrugged off with this term because like you could hear the disdain in people's voice when they said it or wrote it. Um, and in her shoes is such a good example of a movie that doesn't look that doesn't feel like it comes from a cynical or like derogatory place when looking at these type of stories and i think there's a lot of movies of the era that absolutely did that don't have the like that don't yeah. take its subject as seriously as this movie does yeah i think that's right and i think you know this the you know this you know quote unquote genre of uh, chiclet, which is, you know, has so many like distancing scare quotes around it anyway. But it's, I think the knock, the major knock against it when it wasn't just being like, you know, overt misogyny, um, was that they were sort of formulaic or, I mean, you got this sense of just like, you know, you would walk past that like paperback display and they would all be like, they would all have like martini glasses on the cover, like a martini glass and a shoe and like, yeah. You know, a tube of lipstick or something like that. And they were all sort of marketed as, you know, not quite cynically, but just sort of like slickly. They were sort of like slickly marketed, but like, you know, welcome to writing fiction in a in a genre, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, that's how, you know, you have to sell books. And ultimately, the great sin of people who dismissed Chicklet was that they decided to sweep everything aside with the same brush instead of allowing for the fact that like some things are better than others and like individual works within a genre 
have merit if you, you know, seek them out. And this was certainly one. Absolutely. Did you know that Sarah Michelle Gellar was originally supposed to play uh, play Maggie? Sarah Michelle Gellar needed more opportunities like that. Though I'm happy that this is a Cameron Diaz performance, because I agree with you that it's Cameron Diaz's greatest. Yeah, it's really if good. If it would have been Tony Collette, that would have felt... I'm sure it's not, but it would have felt like such an age gap. And maybe that's yes. because we're used to seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar play a teenager. Yeah, I think that's right. I think she's so much defined by her teenage role. Then, yeah, 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 I think that's right. The other interesting thing, the other interesting bit of uh, tidbit that I always find fascinating about this movie is we talk about Cameron Diaz and how she's sort of, she's never been Oscar nominated and she's come close. um, That sort of like string of Golden Globe nominations, beginning with being John Malkovich uh, through Vanilla Sky and Gangs of New York, is... um, her nomination for being John Malkovich was probably thwarted by Tony Collette getting nominated for The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. And all of a sudden, that they're like all these years later, they play sisters. Um, yeah, Cameron Diaz's career is very interesting in that way. In Especially that, like, I do those feel times like... she wasn't nominated for Oscar. I feel yeah. like I wonder if actually the you could say that it's Vanilla Sky was the closest call she had to getting nominated because that's the one where she showed up at every single precursor. And I don't think it's true of the other movies, but well, like, that, y- go ahead. Uh, both Vanilla Sky and Malkovich were where she got Globe and SAG. I don't know what else was she, she got. choice for Malkovich? I think that's maybe. still when they only nominated three or maybe they weren't even there yet. Yeah. Here, hold on a second. Okay, so here's what's interesting, is she was Critics' Choice nominated for Vanilla Sky and not Malkovich, but she was BAFTA nominated for Malkovich and not critic er, and not uh, uh, Vanilla Sky. So And that all tracks. And the thing about Vanilla Sky is, like, statistically, if you want to be a statistics person, which I'm not, um, she... You would think that it would be Vanilla Sky that was the closest, but you watch that performance and it makes complete sense that she wouldn't be nominated. She's only in the first half hour of the movie. Her biggest scene, she's talking about swallowing cum. It's like, of course, (laughs) Oscar voters, especially at that time, didn't nominate that performance. Like, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's especially interesting opposite some of the characters she was playing at the time. But, like, that one makes sense. I wonder if her closest Oscar nomination was for Gangs of New York. That's interesting. Objectively one of her worst performances. That's 2002. So who were the squishiest nominees that year? That's Queen Latifah, Julianne Moore. Catherine Zeta-Jones was always going to be nominated. Kathy Bates for About Schmidt was probably always going to get nominated. Meryl for Adaptation. So she would have had to have gotten by by Julianne Moore for the hours or... Sadly, probably Queen Latifah, because that one seemed like the biggest surprise on nomination morning, or like the one that was like, oh, she made it the whole way. I think Queen Latifah was wonderful in that movie. Well, and I think Cameron Diaz is pretty bad. such a small part. I think Cameron Diaz is pretty bad in Gangs of New York, actually. I think she she was fully worthy of a nomination for both Malkovich and Vanilla Sky, and as I said, for In Her Shoes, Um, but not, I would not have 
have given her much of anything for Gangs of New York. Here's Me a question either, I'm going to ask to you. Considering the nomination hall and how big that movie was, whereas sure. the rest of these are movies that are kind of fighting to be in the conversation. I think that alone probably made it her closest call to Oscar. She could have been that movie's 11th nomination to not win. Exactly. Uh, here's a question I'm going to ask to you. How many MTV Movie Award nominations do you think Cameron Diaz has gotten over the years? More than 10. What's a, what's your guess? Give, a, give me a number. I'm going to guess perhaps, at least in my mind, conservatively, and I'm going to prices right this and say 14. You are so close without going over. You have a good prices right guess. 16. Ah, that was 16 with three wins. Okay. She has a best female performance win for There's Something About Mary. That one I remembered. Best dance sequence win for what movie? Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels. And best on screen team for what movie? Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels, shared with Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu. Yes. 16 time MTV Movie Award nominee, which seems correct. What do you think her most recent one was for? Bad Teacher? No, I think it's later than Bad Teacher, but not by much. Mm. Later than Bad Teacher. It's a movie we could end up doing for this at Oscar Buzz, for sure. It can't be The Counselor. It is. In the category of best WTF moment, The Counselor. Uh, well, I guess that category makes sense. I forgot they did that category. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yep. But that feels like... A dig. Of course it's a dig. She because we know what scene that we're talking about here. Yeah. Yes, we do. We sure do. <laughs> I've never seen that movie, but I still know oh, so bad. much about it. It's bad. She's bad. It's it's just... I will say, there are some really memorable scenes in that movie. And not just like bad memorable like that one, but like this Brad Pitt's death scene in that movie is one of the f- like flash scariest things I've ever seen. It's so... Oh, wow. It just comes out of nowhere, and it's just like, ugh, and it like you. Isn't won't everybody it. that dies in that movie beheaded or something? It's something along the lines of that. I'm gonna like, we're gonna end up doing that movie. We're gonna do the counselor at some point, and I'm gonna let you experience that movie fresh. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell you too much more. But yes, <laughs> didn't Cameron Diaz have to overdub her own dialect for the counselor because it was so bad? Yeah, because she originally tried to do it with this like heavy South American accent that did not... Oh, we love Cameron Diaz. Accents are not her thing. Cameron Diaz, in terms of... I'm still looking at this MTV Movie Award haul that she has. Four of those nominations were for Best Dance Sequence. Eh. Any guesses as what the other ones were besides the first Charlie's Angels? Huh... Cameron we Diaz don't have to dancing. spend too much time on it, but yeah. She doesn't dance in There's Something About Mary. She doesn't, no. She danced in Bad Teacher? No, you're really, really uh, overstating the importance of Bad Teacher to her uh, to her narrative here. It just feels like a thing that the MTV Movie Awards would have rewarded. <laughs> I think even Technically, the MTV she Movie does Awards dance like... <laughs> in Gangs of New York, but I'm going to guess that it's not there. No. Um, both Charlie's Angels movies? Both Charlie's Angels movies, so that's two of them. Um. Oh, uh, a life less ordinary. Yes, God, we I've about never that previously. What's the dance sequence in that? Because I don't think I've ever seen that movie. She dances with you and McGregor. 
That's I just remember that clip from the... That was when I actually watched the MTV Movie Awards. Yep, yep, yep. And then, all right, um, so her other one is her first... Her first year, she was nominated three times in three categories for the same movie, one of which was Best Dance Sequence. The other two were Best Breakthrough Performance. Her first year wasn't a life less ordinary? No. It was Best Breakthrough Performance, Most Desirable Female, back when they still did Most Desirable Female, and Best Dance Sequence. Shit, that could not have happened for The Mask. Yes, of course it happened for The Mask. Wow. She, like, dances in the club, in the little... Uh, Cuban club or whatever. Uh, okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> All right. Can we talk um, about the performance that she should have been Oscar nominated before that nobody ever... I mean, I feel like some gay people bring it up. <laughs> but, like, when we have the conversation about Cameron Diaz, this one always feels, like, weirdly, like, pushed to the back of the room. Give me And up. that's uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. I think she's incredible oh, in that movie. She's incredible. She's straight up undervalued and underrated and only because Julia Roberts is so good and Rupert Everett is so good in that movie. But like, yeah, Cameron Diaz, if Cameron Diaz isn't as perfect as she's in that movie, because that movie really hinges, uh, that is a textbook example of a movie that hinges on the audience's sympathy is going where you need them to go to Mm -hmm. the point where like they reshot certain parts of it to make sure that like the audience would stay on Julia Roberts' side because that audience really did not want to, did not want Julia Roberts to end up with a man at the end of that movie because they didn't think she deserved it, which is, like, terrible. But also, it's just, like, you kind of do see that. And the fact that she ends up dancing with Rupert Everett at the end of that movie is perfect. Um, But I think Cameron Diaz has to be just on that line of, like, sympathetic and you like her and you want her to end up married to this guy. But also, like... You want to be able to see that little bit of too perfectness that Julia hates in her just mm-hmm. a little bit. You need to see it just a little bit, and you see it the exact perfect right amount. When people talk about performances lacking vanity, I always feel like it's really sexist and when they throw it on actresses who are like not wearing makeup or <laughs> like right. Charlize Theron in Monster. Right. To me, what a lack of vanity is in a performance is when a performer is not concerned with the audience liking them and playing the truth of the character. And that is truly what Cameron Diaz is doing in that movie. And she's so funny. And eventually you do have sympathy for her. Yep. Yeah. Because she's been playing her honestly the whole time. Can I also... It is... Go ahead. No, no, you finish what you were saying. I was going to say, alas, it is a movie we cannot talk about because of the dreaded original score musical or comedy that's right can i also bring the connection back like well the connection the first connection to in her shoes from my best friend's wedding is that like that same lack of vanity that she that cameron diaz has in that movie is absolutely present in this movie the fact that Mm -hmm. like she like you know goes through the whole like plays the whole that she can't read the cue cards and she can't read the book to the old man at the thing it is a it's fully a performance that allows that she's going to fully allow the audience to 
look down on her and to think bad things about her and to not like her for long stretches of this movie. Uh, The other connection is we've spoken, of course, about the scene in the diner where Rose and Maggie go have that long little joke about my Marsha and her, you know, her gold plated vagina or whatever. My Marsha's vagina. All of the whole runner about my Marsha in this movie. When when, uh, Rose shows up to her shower before it all goes totally bad and Sadell like, deep sixes her with that horrible video about her um when her dad shows up at the very beginning and he's taking off and he's like it's nice that you're letting Sidel do this for you and she's been going through a hard time lately and he says marsha's been giving her a hard time lately and rose sort of like makes a crack and she's like how bad could it be and he says she's joined jews for jesus and (laughs) it's it's a wonderful little moment okay but so the diner scene where they're where they're joking about my marsha uh the waitress who gets annoyed by them uh is the same woman is one of the women in the wrigley field bathroom scene Ah. where all of the women turn on Julia. Remember when Julia has to, when uh, Cameron Diaz has locked herself in the stall and it's, it all comes out that Julia tried to steal her man from her and all the other women in the bathroom are just like, you bitch. I was right. Well, of course you were right, but that's not my fault. You kissed him at my parents' house oh. on my wedding day. Tramp. Shut up. Now, I love this man, and there is no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced, big-haired food critic. Uh, that she's one of the women. She's, like, one of the prominent women. I thought I had recognized her, and I had to, like, go look her up. The actress is uh, Mary Pat Green, which, like, if ever an actress looked like her name was Mary Pat, it's this woman. And it's perfect. Yes. So, fun connections abound. Cameron Diaz, I know you don't want to, but come back to us. Come, come back, back to us. us. Come back to us. No, we truly, we uh, if if Goldie Hawn can come back and, you know. Give us still... the banger, sisters. God, oh God, I can't, I hope in 20 years, if she doesn't come back before then, I hope that in 20 years, Cameron Diaz comes back and gives us her banger, sisters. Well, why don't Cam- why doesn't Cameron Diaz and Tony Collette do the Banger Sisters together as a reunion <gasps> for this? Right? Wow. Make it happen Hollywood because also I did a thread on Twitter um a little bit ago that was like Tony Collette iconic like uh half of female pairs on screen where it's just like she's done so many movies and also TV shows now where it's like her and another actress are like a iconic pair. So it's in her, her shoes. Her and Dowd. <laughs> Wait, her and Dowd for what? Hereditary. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> no, but I was like in her shoes. I was thinking Muriel's Wedding with her and Rachel Griffiths. God, um, talk about iconic. Your favorite, Connie and Carla. Her God, and, uh, I love that movie. And uh, what's her face? What is her name? Nia Vardalos, how Nia dare Vardalos. you? I'm sorry. Uh, I put in her and Drew Barrymore in that movie where she has cancer and dies. Wait, who? it's Drew who has cancer and dies. No. I haven't seen that movie. Don't spoil that for me. That's the whole point of the movie, Chris. One of them has cancer and dies. I don't know which one of them has cancer. Well, clearly I don't either. <laughs> and I've seen it. Um, it's a really it wonderful movie. It would make movie. more sense that 
I mean, maybe it would make sense that Drew Barrymore would be the cancer and die one, but like, wouldn't you think for the dramatic weight, typically or stereotypically, Tony Collette would have cancer and die? I truly can't remember, and that really speaks only to my deficiencies and not the movie's deficiencies, I'll say that. Um, and then also in Unbelievable, the Netflix TV show lately with her and Merritt Weaver. So, like, honestly... Also written by Susanna Grant, living legend. It all comes around. It all comes around. So what I'm saying is, cast Tony Collette opposite women in all things, and you will have iconic pairs of women in movies. And what is better than that? I say nothing except for iconic trios because you add Shirley MacLaine to them and they are perfect. Shirley MacLaine of course Golden Globe nominated for In Her Shoes and we thought maybe she might be able to take it across the line into an Oscar nomination which would have been I'm pretty sure her first since Terms of Endearment. I don't think she's been nominated since Terms of Endearment. She's another one of those performers that she has had a billion Globe nominations since then but one of those performers where it's like the overdue narrative like Susan Sarandon, mm-hmm. eventually bites you in the ass to the point where people are absolutely, like, sick of Fine. you or, like, there's no yeah. other narrative you can have. Right. She so came close. Like Shirley came you. close with uh, Postcards from the Edge. It's sort of surprising that she didn't get nominated yeah, for that. Because Meryl did. But, you know, her skirt twirled up, all that. That's a great performance. That's a <laughs> the part of that movie where... Because um, she's essentially playing Debbie Reynolds, right? And mm-hmm. she, they're at this family party, and she's trying to like not be the center of attention because it's it's Meryl's party, right? It's the Carrie Fisher character. She like gotten out of rehab or whatever. It's just like she's like, oh, I won't put the attention on me. And then, but all her like f- her like devoted fans who are like sort of gather around her at all these parties in this movie are just like, sing something, sing something. And then she's like, no, 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 no. And then finally she's just like, she just turns to the piano guy and goes, I'm still here in D-flat. And it's just like, <laughs> and hops up onto the piano. And it's so perfect. Oh my God. Postcards what from the Edge movie. is wonderful. It's a wonderful We should also movie. mention about Shirley MacLaine. I mean, we recently had the Shirley MacLaine conversation, so we won't go too deep on her. Um, right. Because we talked about her recently in our Evening Star episode. Yes. But, like, this was 2005, which she had kind of a small, like, comeback situation because she went away for a while. And then there was this, Rumor Has It, and Bewitched. Um, yeah. But, but, like, this and Rumor Has It were in the same season, which, yes, Rumor Has It was an Oscar-buzzed movie. Sure was. Mostly for Shirley MacLaine. Is that yes, maybe but... one of the things that it's like they kind of canceled each other out to a certain extent, even though Rumor Has It was really reviled? I think by the time you got to the part where people were voting for things, I think Rumor Has It was so much in the rearview mirror. And, and so the Golden Globe nomination had really, like, coalesced around... In Her Shoes? I don't know. The thing about the Golden Globe nomination for In Her Shoes for Shirley MacLaine is that they she's the only nominee for her movie, right? Which I always think is yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and the Globes fucking love Shirley MacLaine. They do. But it's always interesting to see where they seat somebody who is the only nominee for their movie, where they don't have, like, a table. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no In Her Shoes table. So they sat Shirley MacLaine next to Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Phillippe at the Walk the Line table, because that was the year that yes. Reese was winning for Walk the Line. And every time they cut back to that table, those three looked like they were having the time of their goddamn lives. It was so much fun to, like, watch them. And you're just like, you just feel like, what a moment to have just, like, been on the fly on the wall or, like, whatever, a fly on a wine glass. Uh just to like 
experience what those conversations were like, what was going on. Was she flirting with Ryan Phillippe? I would have been like, what's happening there? What's going on? <laughs> Reese should definitely try to find some book they can turn into a miniseries where she can star with Shirley MacLaine. Yes. Oh, my God. Reese, make it happen. You know Reese listens to this podcast. And yes. when she does... Reese, just, like, take our advice, please. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of Walk the Line at that Globes, because naturally I've been watching Globes clips, when Joaquin Phoenix won his Globe, it was presented by John Travolta, and when he (laughs) opened the envelope, he said, my friend... Joaquin Phoenix. Why does why do we think John John Travolta insists on doing things like that? Do we think that they're friends? No. Is Joaquin Phoenix a Scientologist? No, and certainly not after making the master. I think that Scientology would shun him. Oh even more. yeah. Yeah. Duh. Um, no, I don't think what I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is probably no stranger to a cult. Like growing up, you know, his name was Leaf Phoenix. Like I think that family was all very like crunchy hippie right so like you know or do we think that john travolta is just one of those culturally appropriating people that like says my friend to everyone yes that's that's my that is absolutely my conviction about john travolta is that like he's the person who like would have never met uh, joaquin phoenix in his life and is like my friend joaquin phoenix because he like liked his performance or something like that right 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 yeah yeah brothers also that's the most i've ever been charmed by joaquin phoenix ever is when he's accepting his award for walk the line and uh he makes some crack about like who'd ever thought that i'd win in the comedy or musical category (laughs) not expected um and it's just like and it's like genuinely you know self-aware and self-effacing and i was just like oh okay like he is capable of that so you know what the fuck is your excuse the rest of the time then you creepy creepy asshole i don't know ugh don't you don't like him. I like him. Um, this was a fun Globes, though, because I, I watched some more of the clips. But, like, we should also talk about, if we're going to talk about In Her Shoes and Oscar, uh-huh. maybe it would do better today than it did at the time. Because, like, this is a very, even, like, maybe macho isn't the right word, because this is the Brokeback Mountain year. But, like, right. everything feels so male about this Oscars to the point where like even Reese Witherspoon winning for like a dude movie and like Rachel Weisz winning for a dude movie like movies that center men it's like you would think that in her shoes could make some headway just by being different yes except I don't know how much like, I don't know that you're going to, that when you're talking about Oscar voters, that they're even thinking, like, are we being fair enough to women this year? I don't year? know if they're like, thinking I just don't think that, think but you have way. to think that, like, sameness doesn't help a lot of movies, right? Like, I don't yeah. know. Like, no, if, I, I, I like, see what you're something saying. Like, something could stand out more simply because it's different. I wonder if, though, if a movie like Monster would have been a better consideration for that, just because it was, you know, it had Charlize Theron's lead performance powering it, whereas this was a, you know, a rom-com, a chick flick. It didn't make any money. Tony Collette and Cameron Diaz are not exactly, like, Oscar 
Oscar bait actresses, right? Tony's got the one nomination, but like they're not like mm-hmm. it's not like Streep and Sarandon at this or anything like that. I just feel like even with the Shirley MacLaine factor, there's I just don't think it was ever on anybody's radar at the time. I think it took like several years after the fact of like people like you and me and like, you know, Bobby Finger, God bless you, Bobby, you have been a great advocate for this movie and I appreciate it. Um talking about this movie after the fact and being like, you know what's a great movie is In Her Shoes. And it, like, it took years for this movie to even attain that reputation, I feel like. I'm a little baffled by the original reception of the movie because I think this tells you, this is also kind of the sweet spot for the type of movies we do here. It's a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. I bet that it is. it was lower at the time, but a yep. 60 on Metacritic. Which is which, horseshit. Which, uh, yes, it's horseshit. It's absolute horseshit. But it speaks to, like, not bad reviews, but very unenthusiastic and milk toast yes. response. Yep. Which is very silly to me, considering what this movie is doing. Agreed. I absolutely agree. It's, I don't. It, I don't know where I was going with that. No, but, but I think like, I think that's where that's what the climate was at the time. It was a thirty-two million dollar box office movie with 60% Metacritic. Like, that's just never going to happen. Yeah. Like, it's weird. I don't... I guess I'm saying I don't understand what it was that people were not enthusiastic about this movie for. Right. And I think it just comes down to sexism. Like, this is... It opened the same week that Good Night and Good Luck and Capote both opened in their limited release. And like, those were the ones that were getting the like critical attention at the time. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. I think it, maybe the movie was just a little buried. I think also, I think it's a movie we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the way the movie sort of starts off a little slowly or comes from, you know, a darker place. I think a lot of people start to watch this movie. And after the first half hour, they check out Mm -hmm. either they stop watching or they like mentally check out and they've decided that they know what this movie is and they don't leave themselves open to where this movie goes in its second half. Like even in Roger Ebert's review, they quote Roger Ebert's review on the Wikipedia page. And he says the film starts out with the materials of an ordinary movie and becomes a rather special one. And I think that's the thing is that like, it does start out feeling like either a movie you've seen before or a movie you don't really care to see. Where, mm-hmm. like, this, like, you know, the trampy sister is sleeping with the good sister's boyfriend and, you know, it feels all rather, you know, kind of trashy. And if you don't have the faith in the movie's, you know, principles to principal, you know, actors and director and writer and that kind of thing, um, to make something out of that, then you're going to write it off. And I guess probably that's true of... <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess that's probably also true of the just the narrative arc and the character arc too that there's a lot of subtlety mm-hmm. in the beginning that if you are checked out for and you are not paying attention to you're missing some of the emotional payoff of the movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's a bummer guys. This movie is incredible. Golden Satellites liked it enough to give it nominations for Shirley MacLaine and Tony Collette, so that's nice. Oh, that's nice. And of Did course, anybody beloved... enterprising out in the world honor Cameron Diaz for this performance? Um, Wikipedia says the Imagine Foundation Award, Imagine, I M A G E N, 
Hold on. An organization dedicated to encouraging and recognizing the positive portrayals of Latinos in the entertainment industry. All right. Well, at least they honored Cameron Diaz. What's that? At least they honored Cameron Diaz. At least they honored Cameron Diaz, exactly, with a nomination for I have this pulled up. Uh, For Best Actress, guess who beat her, however? In 2005? Yes. Huh. I will say this organization has taste, because this is also a movie I like. Is it a movie we've talked about? No. We couldn't talk about, but I bet our listeners would love if we talked about this movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, From an actress who was mostly famous for a TV role. I mentioned her in our mailbag episode. A TV role that came before this movie or after this movie? Ooh, I'm spotty on the timeline. (laughs) I think after... Okay. The movie role, her breakthrough was definitely before. Interesting. I don't know. Give it to It me. is also a female ensemble movie. It opened in the summer, targeting a younger audience. She lost to America Ferreira in The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Oh, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, of course. Yeah, that uh, Ugly Betty was premiered two years after that. Ah. 2007. Yep. R.I.P. Ugly Betty. I loved Ugly Betty. Can I say, I watched that show till the very end, and I it was not always the most exciting show, but like it was really, really good. It had really good Season cast. one of that show is the most Golden Globes network yes. comedy ever. I will say, by the end, it really, really pays off the years you have spent watching these characters sort of get to know each other and be in each other's lives. The last episode is really interesting and in that like it really it's it's come a long way. And then you've got, you know, Judith Light was on that show. Michael Yuri was so good on that show. Oh, I miss it. Ugly Betty. Anyway, can I also bring up I want to go into my uh my notebook a little bit just because I made some odd little ins and outs and here's and there's for this movie. Um no mention we didn't mention the movie the song that kicks off the movie. Oh god. I I I took note of it while I was watching it and I completely forget now. It's, it's Stupid Girl by Garbage. Yes, exactly. Which is really interesting cuz like that that song was like about a decade old by that point and I was I literally was just like is this maybe a little too on the nose when we're showing like Cameron Diaz making foolish decisions that were like I think at least girl? it like does this thing that I think it plays into in the first act of the movie as well, where it's like acknowledging our preconceived notions before it subverts them or before it tells us that they're bullshit. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Brooke Smith in this movie is so wonderful. However, I will say Brooke Smith being cast as the jerk friend is a little unfair because like Brooke Smith is plays Tony Collette's friend who is like your sister sucks, fuck your sister. I don't you think she's like, a jerk her. though. I don't think the movie portrays her as a jerk. I think the movie plays her as a fairly realistic character type, which is the friend who is always just like, I don't know why you put up with that. I don't know why you don't just walk away from that. I don't know whatever. And who doesn't quite ever understand that just like I that's not an option for me. So like help me talk my way through this that without, you know, 
throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think it's, you can see where she is a good friend to her. And she's sort of this like fiercely loyal friend. But, sure, but and she's still her maid of honor only ever end. play the empirically correct one. <laughs> That's true. But it's also this, there's this little sense of Brooke Smith where it's just like, even if she's your friend, you can tell there's this like tetchy side of her where it's just like, she's going to give it to you for real. My, my joke about the Silence of the Lambs is always like, I'm just imagining after they rescue Catherine Martin from the pit and like her and Clarice Starling go on the like whatever media tour of because it's such a you know national sensation storyline so they have to like go in front of like press conferences and and reporters and whatnot and she and probably the, can't stand Claire well Starling. I was gonna say and like the two of them just being like very standoffish with each other because like just like the last thing we hear of Catherine is her just being like you stupid bitch like yelling <laughs> out from the pit and like Clarice being like I almost died trying to rescue you you asshole and just like the two of them barely speaking to each other I you know who definitely hates clary starling who precious the dog (laughs) (laughs) because like precious is definitely on that press tour the whole time too and becomes (laughs) like a media sensation herself yes um and is like with uh with Catherine Martin the whole time. So it's like whenever Catherine Martin's like, Ugh, you're still a stupid bitch, Precious is there like, Yeah. Is there a more fascinating two scene character, maybe three scene character from a movie than Catherine the Martin? Dog. No, I was going to say than Catherine Martin in The Silence of the Lambs. Where, like, I'm endlessly thinking about, like, her the decisions she makes and, like, the, the stuff she I says in the movie. movie and like lets her be trash. Yes! It's like, so she's ra- a senator's daughter and yes! she's still just, like, oh, kind of trashy. All like, right. she's going to fucking kill this dog. Yeah. Um... I, I I brought her up at the beginning. Mrs. Lefkowitz is just a font of old Jewish lady hilarity. I just love her so, so much. Every single thing where she's just like, she's always a little bit hard on Maggie, even after like Maggie and Ella have their like, you know, turnaround moment where they turn mm-hmm. the corner and become nice to each other. And where she's just like, don't think we don't know about you, little miss comes down to bilk your mother, your grandmother after all, out of all she's worth. And it's just like, wow, you're like, she just went shopping for you. And you're still, <laughs> like, you're still not letting her off the hook. I kind of respect that. Or like when she's, um, when she's talking about like men today and whatever and just like they have too many choices be an astronaut be a playboy and it's just like what decade are you living in madam it's just like she's so funny be a all of the florida ensemble of this movie is wonderful we didn't mention anything about norman lloyd who plays like a blind man in a nursing home that she eventually learns how to read by reading to him and then she marries his son when he dies Norman Lloyd is so sweet in this movie that's maybe the most like saccharine thing the movie does but it does it in a way that's very touching to me and also the guy who um, who plays Ella's boyfriend for lack of a better term the guy who played Hesh on the Sopranos and uh, he's a judge he's such a shitty judge or not a no he's a he's a law partner he maybe becomes a judge on the good wife slash the good fight anyway it's such a well-cast movie. Ken Howard is actually really great in this movie. He has a couple mm-hmm. of like really good scenes. Oh, here's what I wanted to mention to you. Mark Forstein. Or ah. like slash slash okay, yes. Simon Stein. Like, would we have fallen for that like I'm gonna order for you bullshit he does at the beginning with Rose? Oh, I would have. Or like not. I would I would take you out to like and he like describing the like ideal like dinner date they would have. Like she really sort of falls for that. And I'm just like, I don't know. If I would. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a way to incorporate me into your experience. Yeah, yeah. I would have left. Um, <laughs> My other fine. Great... It works for her, and they end up together, and he's not a jerk. No, I really like the story together. My my main association for Mark Forstein is uh, he was on the West Wing playing a good Republican. He was, every once in a while, they would cast a good Republican, and he was the one who... Uh, who was moral enough to stop the inquiry into Leo McGarry before they got to his drinking problem. And that truly, we thankful. We are, we are very thankful for him. Um, but he was also like a love interest in that. He was Janelle Maloney's love interest in that. And I'm just like, we are me- very, maybe meant to find him uh, very alluring. And I'm, and I'm on the fence. Uh, well. I don't know. Certainly more alluring than Richard Berge as the uh, shitty law partner who... Sleeps with Rose and then sleeps with Yeah, he sucks. In her own home. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, he was, of course, the bad husband, the bad ex-husband of Terry Hatcher on Desperate Housewives. So, like, we knew already he was a bad guy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Anything Uh, else? uh, I don't know. You can either be sweet... Um, hot or worthless um, as a male member of these ensembles, and uh, those all fit them very well. Um, Speaking of men, I kind of want to have, I want to pose this question to you, because this is a conversation we've had, to bring it back to Curtis Hansen. Mm -hmm. Is this an example of a male director who makes a really good female-centered movie that just, like, never gets the credit for this movie when, like, male critics talk about their filmographies. Very possible. Like, nobody mentions this for Curtis Hansen. Just like you mentioned, uh, nobody mentions Girl Interrupted for James Mangold. I think that's definitely true. And they also kind of don't mention The River Wild or The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which are his other two female-centric movies. They'll mention L.A. Confidential and Wonder Boys and 8 Mile and... Imagine it's mostly, mentioning 8 Mile of all of his movies before those other movies. It's mostly, though, they really do sort of mostly boil him down to... I remember when he died, it was mostly just like L.A. Confidential director dies. And it's just like he had a such a much more interesting filmography than just L.A. Confidential, even though I think L.A. Confidential is superb and is it is his best work. Like, I can recognize that. Of course I can. But, like, the the... The greatness of Curtis Hansen's career isn't that he directed that one movie. It's that he directed, like, seven or eight movies that are, like, really, really wonderful in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What other examples can you think of that, though? Because I What's do that? think that this is a thing of male oh. directors, yeah, not getting mentioned for their women's pictures. I mean, hmm. I think one of the more obvious ones is Steven Spielberg, who did The Color Purple, and obviously, yeah. like, there's other feelings you can have about that, but I think that that's one of his better, one of his best movies. Yeah, I mean, it's also just like, I mean, nobody talks about Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore when they talk about Scorsese's filmography, and that's like, and I think that is partially the fact that, like, he buried that movie under three decades worth of making movies about male mobsters so like that's fine but it's a great um, movie it's a great movie it's one of my favorites of his and uh, and, uh, you know um ellen burston won a won an oscar and deservedly so for that um yeah that's an interesting it's an interesting concept i'm trying to think of just like other like male directors who've directed like very very um sort of decidedly female-centric movies like obviously like Stephen Daldry is going to get remembered for the hours by Hooker by Crook. If if for nothing mm-hmm. else that like I'll just start screaming it to people. But like I can't think of any <laughs> other movie of his that would be like more 
more tied to him. Like when Stephen Daldry, you know, hopefully in many decades, uh, uh, dies, like that's going to be in the first paragraph of his obituary, right? Is the hours. The hours. Like maybe also Billy Elliot, but like it's the hours. Um, it's an interesting concept though. And I think you're probably right in that like, you know, it's certainly, I mean, I got mad enough about it when we were talking about Mangold, when we were talking about the fact that just like, just say girl interrupted, I dare you. Just, just try it. Just see how it feels coming out of your mouth. Just you know, roll it around a little bit. It's, it was a very popular movie. Jesus Christ. Out here talking about 310 to Yuma, which is a good movie, but like, for God's sake. Copland, uh, for Pete's sake. Can we do Copland? Is that a movie that got, that didn't get any kind of like random I think it did for nomination. Sylvester Stallone. Yikes, I don't really want to talk about Sylvester Stallone. No, but it didn't get like a nomination. Or, like, we can do I'm it. I'm looking it up now. Yeah. It definitely was Oscar buzz because it was. I would it really was like, like for us to. I would like for my time to not include <laughs> having to watch Copland. Even though Janine Garofalo's in it? Um, you get really mad when people are like, yeah, but this part of the female story in a Scorsese movie, the equivalent right now to my white hot rage that can you cannot tell is there because it's buried under sickness is you telling me that Janine Garofalo is in Copland as if that's going to get me to watch Copland. How dare you? I'm not saying that Copland's a good movie. We don't, you know, we talked about earlier that we want to get I into... I hope you're not saying Copland is a good movie. It's not. It's really not. Um, but we want, to, we want to have some movies that we can sort of, you know, knock around a little bit. Yeah, we do need some shitty movies because we've liked too many of our recent movies. <laughs> Has it been like a mo- well? We did Welcome to Marwin. I think that's true. We shouldn't forget about that. <laughs> yeah, we filled the glass on Welcome to Marwin, and we're <laughs> slowly draining it. Um, All right. No, I love this fucking movie. It's a perfect movie. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Do you still get oh my teary at the end with that? I get teary through like the whole last hour of this movie. Yeah. It's a really good, it's a really great ending. Also the part where in, cause the, there's, there's a really sort of like weird and bad voiceover that starts the movie that then like goes completely away for the next two hours and then comes back at the very end where they're both they're Each of That's them are like alternating note. lines of, I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. And like that makes the shittiness of the early voiceover worthwhile to me that like if you needed to have it at least let it end where tony collette and cameron diaz are alternating lines from right uh, i carry your heart i carry it in my heart and then it ends with cameron sort of like standing in the street all by herself watching the car go by and then she sort of like skips her way back into the reception and it's so and then the jamaican band is singing i got you babe because of that joke earlier in the movie where she said yeah. we're pair like sunny and Cher, and tony collette goes um they broke up or they got divorced but they remain close they remain quite close <laughs> um it's a good line seeing this so like and you brought up little women earlier in the episode Seeing this at least relatively close to Little Women, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think those are two, like, uh, very, very different movies, obviously, but, like, both wonderful movies about siblings and what it feels like to have a sibling. And... Yeah. It's true. It's definitely true. It's, it's, I, I'm, I am the most a sucker for movies about siblings. I love them in all different, um, you know, iterations, and... This is a great one. This is... Yeah. 
I love that, like, the central romance of this movie, for as much as, like, Rose and Simon is a very good one, and, you know, but that the, the central relationship of this movie is Rose and Maggie, and it really brings them full circle. Mm-hmm. That little laugh they have at the table where Maggie makes the joke about, like, Simon's pretty hot, and then she's like, too soon. And you can tell that, like, Rose could, you know would be well within her rights to just be like, that was a shitty thing to say. But she just sort of like looks at her and then they just laugh at each other. And I love that like any movie where like they pull out a silent laugh like that or like an unexpected. Well, it's also an acknowledgement that Richard Berge is just a fuck boy, basically. Yeah. So like, what do you expect from a fuck boy? He's like the most Wall Street fuck boy actor. And oh, it's I mean, totally that is a compliment. True. Yeah. It's all in the face and the hairstyle. Yeah, it's for yeah. sure. Um, what else? What else there are so do you many, have to say about interstitial? There are so many little like interstitial moments in this movie. That are good when she's when she finds the shoe that's been broken, the heel that's been broken and and affixed with chewing gum, and she's just like accosting Simon in the front seat of the cab and just of the car and just being like, "My heel has a mouth. Like, would you like to?" <laughs> and he's like, "No one will notice." And then the cut, the smash cut, is to her like limping through the receiving line of this wedding and the bride being like, "What happened to your heel?" <laughs> my heel has a mouth <laughs> um but like yeah all of that all of the stuff with like you know like one of the things that i love about movies and it's very weird about me is i love when like a business plan comes together like the part where like shirley <laughs> mclean is filling up the appointment book with all of of maggie's personal shopper dates Yes. I was just like, it thrills me that just like you guys have like really tapped into a lucrative market here and like good for you guys. As someone who also keeps a very tight schedule, seeing a full list is very satisfying to me on film. Yeah. Like tasks. It was it's 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 satisfying watching Maggie self-actualize in this movie. Mm-hmm. As much as it is watching Rose sort of find her not quite a fairy tale like it's not like simon's not this like too good to be true or whatever it's just like it is as she says at some point in the movie the happiness that she deserves um but also i can't help but watch her and just be like how are you making this dog walking thing work as a living like how is this working for you how much money did you stash away working in that law firm for she couldn't have been there too long she's not you know she's still fairly young Mm -hmm. i don't know I don't know. I don't know how the economics. Of Let it be a fantasy. Work. How dare you? Exactly. All right. Are we ready for IMDb like again? My, uh, well, I was going to close it with oh, something sorry. sentimental because it is a somewhat sentimental movie. And my fantasy, many decades in the future, is uh, many, many because you are obviously incredibly young. For our own little Ella and Mrs. Lefkowitz in whatever nursing home we're going to live in together. Yes. Uh, dibs on Mrs. Lefkowitz. You can be Shirley McLean. No, sorry, sorry. I'm the rascally one who's going to fall asleep on their rascal. <laughs> oh, I love fine. that she gets so exhausted by going to the mall that she falls asleep on her rascal. Maybe I shouldn't love that, but yeah. like, she's and an enterprising Ma- woman. She's Maggie trying. just walks up to her and she just goes, are you dead? <laughs> are you ready to move on to the IMDb game? I sure am. 
All right. Explain to our listeners what the IMTB game is. Oh, happily, I will. Uh, the IMTB game uh, is what we do every week. We end our episodes with the IMTB game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. It's only fair. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints so that we can get out of here at a reasonable time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you want to give or guess first? I think I will give first. All right. So I stayed, as I tend to do, I go through the director of the film and then I find a actor or actress who has been in one of his films so curtis hansen had uh you're sort of spoiled for choice because he's directed so many great actors over the years i delved into la confidential and i found an actor who got a decent amount of oscar buzz before the precursors really started churning um danny devito for that movie for playing Ah. the, the rascally little um gossip reporter in that film can you guess the four known four movies for Mr. Daniel DeVito. Daniel DeVito. Is there any TV? There is no TV. So no, uh, it's always sunny. Uh, Batman Returns. Correct. One for one. I'm going to guess LA Confidential is not in there because you are want to do that. And it would be strange to me if LA Confidential was there. Um, okay, Danny DeVito. What else would he... Ooh, this is tough. Yeah. None of it's going to be recent. It's not the ones I would have picked, I will say that. Interesting. Um, How about Get Shorty? No. Strike one. Okay. That's a good guess, though. I probably would have guessed that. Ruthless People? No. Strike two. All right, so now you get you. Damn. Your years are 1987, 1989, and 1996. Uh, I don't know if the year is right, but is 87 Romancing the Stone? No, even though that might have been the same year as that movie. Let me look up. Okay, is... Mm, Romancing see, the Stone these is years blur for Danny DeVito. I don't know how helpful this is going to be. Wait, what was the 90s one? 90s one was 1996. Is that Matilda? Yes. Does he have the acting credit or the directing credit and is known for? It doesn't say. It just says the the role that he played. All right. So I guess that Um, is acting. Yeah. uh, Is 87 Throw Mama from the Train? Yes, it is. Great movie. Another movie that he directed. I don't know if it's a great movie. I just watched it a lot as a kid. I love Anne Ramsey. I love Anne Ramsey so much, and I'm, of course, watching all the Christmas movies this past week or two. Um, she shows up in one scene of Scrooged, but it's my favorite scene. <laughs> it's when the three homeless people think that he's Richard Burton. Why do you keep calling me Dick? I'm sorry, Mr. Burton. Maybe we don't know you well enough to call you Dick. No. But after Exodus 2 and Night of the Iguana, we thought we had something special. So could you please just do... A couple of lines from Hamlet, please. Or the sandpiper. Leave me alone. Do see a pleasure for me. Please do. Please do it. Please do it for Eva. Yeah. I am all kind of nobody in here coming out before me. All those you go with all that is in here. You know, the rain by full nightfall of Chia. I swear, by the I forswear. 
not far. Now beat it before I beat you. And though they try and get him to say lines from like uh, Cleopatra and different other movies, and she just goes, "Please, Dick, please for me." It's so, <laughs> it's so funny. I love it so much. All right, one more. Nineteen eighty-nine. Mm. It can't be. If Romancing the Stones on there. The other ones can't be on there. Is it twins? It's not twins. That's a really good guess. What year was that? That was probably around 89. I will say um, twins is 88. <clears throat> You're on the right track on a, in a couple of different ways. It is the, the common bond between two of these movies that you've already guessed correctly is the, is true with this one. And also the war of the roses then. It's the, yes. It's the war of the roses. Yeah. Oh, okay. Which is, is war of the roses. Something we could talk about before the nineties. It's very possible. Did it possible. get an Oscar nomination? No, and it got three Golden Globe nominations. Fantastic. Listeners. We should do that. Yeah, that's a movie. So three of DeVito's movies, interestingly enough, are movies he directed but also starred in. Okay. Wait, yeah. did he direct that? He directed that. Yep. He directed Matilda, right? And he directed Throw Mama from the Train, I'm pretty sure. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Danny DeVito. Yeah, it's interesting. Would give me fucking Danny DeVito for an In Her Shoes <laughs> episode. Fucking asshole. All right. So you for deserve you, to have one to, to struggle through. Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't struggled like that in a long time. Okay. It's fine. Well, then I hope that this one, which is vaguely evil to give you, uh, makes you similarly struggle. Uh-oh. I went to the origins of In Her Shoes with a book written by Jennifer Weiner. Jennifer Weiner, her other IMDb credit, is writing for a show called State of Georgia, or maybe it was based on one of her books. Uh, State of Georgia starred Raven Simone, but I'm not giving you Raven Simone Thank because God. there's several Disney Channel things <laughs> on her IMDb game, and you would have gotten that right away. I am yeah. giving you one of State of Georgia's other co-stars, legend of stage and screen, Loretta Devine. Any television? No television? Well, yes, there is television, actually. There's one piece of television. Is it Grey's Anatomy? It is not Grey's Anatomy. That is your first incorrect guess. Shoot. All right, Loretta Devine, movies. Let's do movies first. Waiting to Exhale. Waiting to Exhale is correct. Okay. Classic movie. Wonderful movie. Wonderful movie. Fantastic Directed by Forrest Whitaker. The thing about Loretta Devine is she's such a great ensemble member Mm -hmm. that it's tough to pick out what the highlights would be. Hmm. Waiting to Exhale was probably her most, like... We could totally do Waiting to Exhale. I'm looking at it now, and for some reason I thought it was a nominee, and it is not. I know, it should have been a nominee for um, for song. Angela motherfucking Bassett. Well, yeah, a lot of things. A lot of things. Okay. Um... So you still have three to guess, three one wrong guess. answer, and yeah. one of them is television. Right is one of them I'm going to be so mad when this is wrong is one of them <laughs> Urban Legend fuck you yes, <laughs> Urban Legend is on there I thought I would be stumping you with this I knew she was in one of those 
uh, teen horror movies from the late 90s. She is and... a cast member of Urban Legend, and Urban Legend is in her known for. <laughs> yes. Urban okay. Legend is the movie that, in my memory, rules so hard, but I think <laughs> I don't want to revisit it because it I loved it at the suck time. really hard. I loved it at the time. Um, oh, God, is one of them Crash? Yes, one of them is Crash, the oh. best picture winner for the year we are talking about. Right, okay. All right, so you still have one wrong guess before you're going to get the years that this that she was at least on this television this show. This television show. Okay, well... So it's to me, it's is it recent or is it not recent? Because I think if it's recent, it's the Carmichael show, and if it's not recent, it's a different world. And I don't know which way to go. I'm going to go with the Carmichael show. It is not the Carmichael show. I will give you the years that she was on the show. It is 2000 to 2004. You can tell me whether or not that's recent. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's sort of intermediate. 2000 to 2004. Um. Huh. I watched this show, uh-huh. which is very strange, considering like this was when I was in high school and I didn't really watch TV, to be honest. So this would have been before I watched Eli TV, Stone. but I didn't watch TV. Oh god, is it Boston Public? It is Boston Public. Wow. Wow, David E. Kelly getting the benefit of the doubt from the IMDb game. That's crazy. <laughs> Ugh, amazing. If you go on the IMDb page for Boston Public, the first uh, image in the photos section is Chris Evans with total sun in hair. Very <laughs> early 2000s. Wow. And then the second is Chris Evans, and the third is Loretta Devine. Chris Evans. I don't even remember Chris Evans being on that show. He must have been a student. He, yeah, he must have been like a bit player. That and cast, like, though, is super just... insane. It's Loretta Devine, Chai McBride, <laughs> Five-ish Finkel, because it was uh, David E. Kelly, so that dipping into the David E. Kelly back catalog. Jerry Ryan, Michael Rappaport, Nikki Cat, Jessalyn Gilsig, Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones. Um, Joey McIntyre was on that show, Kathy Baker, Tom McCarthy, like before he was a full-time director, was like definitely an actor in a bunch of things, and he was definitely on this. He played a teacher who like got fired for um having an inappropriate relationship with a student and This is like the shittiest school ever because like all of the controversies you hear about mm-hmm. happening in schools on the news happen in all of this one school. Like Michelle, the entire school administration needs to be fired. <laughs> Michelle Monahan to Myra Gray. <laughs> wow. Did Tamira Gray get an episode from winning a challenge on American Idol or something? No, I think it was just she was like that show was so popular that they wanted to incorporate. Yeah. Cheryl. I have no idea why the hell I watched that show. Milo Ventimiglia. Billy Zane. Wild. Wild. Joseph, I think that's our episode. I think it is. Any last notes? Nothing. (sighs) No, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this movie. I was glad our our listeners voted this second place so we could, you know. And we're so vocal that we decided, you know what, we're just going to treat everybody and we're going to do it now. That's right. Exactly. All of that. Thank you. All of that.
<laughs> All right, that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Follow our alt account at my Masha's vagina. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> You can cut that out. My Masha would never have an alt account. My Masha would. My Masha is thirsty on main. <laughs> my my Masha doesn't even have Twitter. My Masha. <laughs> my um, Masha is only on Hinge. My Masha is not on on Tinder at all. My Masha has seventeen thousand Instagram followers. <laughs> so great i love it so much <laughs> my matcha saw little women this weekend twice <laughs> all right joe where can the listeners find you and your stuff sure you can find me and my stuff at, on twitter at joe reed reed is spelled r-e-i-d on letterbox where i'm really like making a mad dash to see everything as i can everything that i can before the end of the year so truly it's hopping right about now uh that is also joe reed reed spelled the exact same way I am also on Twitter at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L, under Letterbox on the same name. I also write regularly for the film experience. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five Star Review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please make us your Masha with as much blindly effusive praise as you can muster. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Am I here? <laughs> I've gotten through. Hey, lady, aren't you? Who's it? Gee, what a looker you were. Or better yet, sorry, I thought you were. Who's it? Whatever happened to her? Sometimes a kick in the rear But I'm here I've run the gamut A to Z Three cheers and damn it C'est la vie I got through all of last year And I'm here Lord knows at least I was there <laughs> <laughs>